As happens in uh, many governments around the world, there are oftentimes investigations going on to find out whether or not politicians have conducted themselves in legal ways. This is happening in my country right now in the United States of America. One general, a man who held the position of national security advisor, has recently been convicted in a court of law for various crimes, illegal activities, lying. And by the account of some, the way it happened was he got a phone call from an FBI agent. And the FBI agent, who's a law enforcement officer on a federal level in the US government, said, we'd like to come over to your office and talk to you for just a second and ask you a few questions about some people that you've met now, what normally would have happened would have been that that government official, the National Security Advisor, would have asked for lawyers to be present when those FBI officers came. But he didn't. He was relaxed. He was calm. And so he said, come on over to my office. The FBI officers came over. They asked questions. And months and months later, the answers to his questions are now being used against him in a court of law. Many are calling it entrapment. The motives behind the questions that were asked make a difference. Everything from how we view politicians and whether or not they've done things illegal or not, all the way to what a parent experiences when it's time to go to bed. And the questions start coming. What about this, Daddy? What about this, Mommy? Explain this to me. Explain this to me. All the wonders and mysteries of the universe. Every parent who has children know, knows what it's like to have a child delay bedtime with questions. Well, that's somewhat innocent, and yet there is a motive behind those questions. The men who are speaking with Jesus in our passage this afternoon, they have motives, and it's clear to Jesus what their motives are. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 27. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. Follow along with me. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, you have not read, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the big idea that I want you to see happening in the passage this afternoon is this. Marvel at Jesus' perfect wisdom, which defeats the attacks of men. Marvel at Jesus' perfect wisdom, which defeats the attacks of men. We'll break up the passage into the two paragraphs. It'll be two-point sermon this morning, and I'll tell you the titles of the points when we get to them. Now, Jesus is in, is in Jerusalem, and he will not leave Jerusalem before he's crucified. Jerusalem is the one place that God had determined that the Jewish people were to worship him through sacrifices and offerings at the one temple. There was only one temple for the Jews. And so Jerusalem was therefore the center of power for Israel's religious leaders. They were all there. They were Judaism's authorities. They were supposed to be the most learned, the most informed, the most wise. Jesus, on the other hand is a carpenter-turned-Jewish teacher. He comes from Nazareth in Galilee, which was a completely unimportant place in a faraway corner of the country. Now, you would think that he would be no match for these religious overachievers. Yet, without degrees or academic accomplishments, Jesus' authority and wisdom towered over everyone that he came into contact with. When he was in Galilee, they were astonished by him. They asked themselves, where did he get all this wisdom and power? That was in the early chapters of Mark. Now that he's in Jerusalem with these religious elite, the question isn't, where did he get all this wisdom and power? The question that they have is, who do you think you are compared to us? His authority is being challenged. Now in our passage today, Jesus' wisdom is put to the test with two challenging questions. And Jesus' answer to the first question demonstrates his wisdom about God and government. His wisdom about God and government. That's the first point. Verses 13 through 17. Wisdom about God and government. What well, says in our first verse and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now the they seems to be the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who 
challenged his authority at the end of chapter 11. But the two groups of leaders that they sent to him now are a very unlikely pairing. Now, the Pharisees were strict keepers of the law, and the Herodians were supporters of the Jewish dynasty of kings who were installed by the Romans to rule Palestine before and during the lifetime of Jesus. The Pharisees were focused on religious purity. The Herodians were focused on political power. They didn't make very good bedfellows. Now, they were very different, but they were united in their opposition to Jesus. <laughs> it's amazing what hatred can do to bring people together. In fact, all the way back in chapter 3, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were conspiring together to destroy Jesus. And now they're setting what they think is an inescapable trap with this particular question they have for him. But before they ask the question in verse 14, they falsely flatter Jesus. They try to set him up, or what we might say in America, they butter him up. <laughs> they say things like, we know that you're true. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. We know that you're not swayed by appearances. We know that you truly teach the way of God. Now, of course, all that flattery was designed to force Jesus to give a real answer to their question, no matter how much it might get him into trouble. And trouble is exactly what they wanted for Jesus. Now, before we consider the question that they ask, it might help you to consider the difference between flattery and encouragement. Now, those things that they said about Jesus, they could have been said with good motives rather than bad motives, and they would have been encouraging words, right? Because actually they were true. Flattery is the kind of things that you say about someone in order to benefit yourself, in order to get something from someone. Maybe it's complimenting them on their appearance or for something that they've just done just to make them like you or prepare them for a favor that you're going to ask them. Encouragement, on the other hand, is the kind of things that you say for some, about someone solely for their benefit. You want to build them up. You, you, want to see, you want them to see the good things that God's doing in them or maybe to be thankful for a skill or a gift that God has given them. So flattery is selfish. Encouragement is selfless. Flattery is sin. Encouragement is godly and loving. Check your heart when you give a compliment to someone. Are you giving it to build someone up? We should be doing that more and more. It should characterize our church, our life together as Christians. Or are you giving compliments so that others will like you or so that they'll do something for you? Think about it. Well, flattery was what these religious leaders were engaging in before they asked their question, which was, and you can see it there in the second half of verse 14. Look at it with me. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the question was a trap, and it was a hotly debated question among the Jews during that time because if Jesus said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the crowds would be angry with him. 
Paying taxes to Caesar was tremendously unpopular. It's kind of like Solik. Okay, maybe not, not quite like Solik. It was worse than Solik. Now, if Jesus said no to the question, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, well, then the Romans would come looking for him and they'd arrest him for rebellion, right? But Jesus, Jesus is smarter. He's infinitely smarter. Jesus doesn't just hear their words. He sees their hearts. He knows what's going on in them. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? They're being hypocritical because their question is not an honest question. They're acting like they really want to know the answer to this difficult ethical question when really they have no interest in the real answer. They just want to destroy Jesus. Hypocrisy is falseness. It's putting on a face to impress people when you know that it's not what you really believe or who you really are. So in other words, uh, it comes, the idea of a hypocrite came from the idea of a Greek actor who would get up on the stage and put on a mask to become someone else on the stage. They were a hypocrite. Being a hypocrite in real life then is pretending to be someone that you're not. And that's what these men were doing with their flattery and their fake question. And so Jesus asks them to bring him a denarius. That's the coin that was used to pay the Roman tax. And it would have been worth about an average day's wage. And after they handed one to Jesus, he held it up and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's, they said. Now, you should know that on a denarius, one side would have had in it stamped Tiberius Caesar's bust or head, and it said underneath him, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. That means he was semi-divine. On the other side of the coin would have been Tiberius's mother, Livia, and under her head would have been written high priest. Now, Jesus answers the question in verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus is saying, if Caesar's image is on that coin, give him the coin. But give God all the things that are God's possession. Caesar's image was on the coins. But every person is made in the image of God. Every person. We are his workmanship. Each person is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. It says that in Psalm 139. Our scripture reading this afternoon in Genesis 1 confirmed that. It said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And ever since then, Every person, every descendant of Adam and Eve is made in his image and is God's sole possession. We owe him our complete allegiance, brothers and sisters. And he is your God, whether you recognize it or not. In fact, if you're not a Christian, one of the things that you should know is that we believe as Christians that because you're made in God's image, you're designed to live in a covenant relationship with the one true God. 
You were designed to honor him in all that you say and all that you do and all even that you think. And that's where true life is found, in a relationship with him, in a loving and holy relationship with the God of the universe. There was a great African theologian named Augustine, Augustine, excuse me, and about this passage he said, we are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped on us has been worn down by our wandering. God himself seeks his own coin just as Caesar sought his coin. God is seeking you. He's calling you to himself. Even now, through this sermon, or through your Christian friend who's speaking to you about the gospel. That's how he's doing it. But you can't and you won't go to him apart from his working and apart from what he and he alone has done to make it possible for you to give yourself to him. Because we have sin in our lives, and we all have sin, we cannot be with God because he's perfectly holy. There had to be a price paid for our sin, and that price is death. And so God sent his beloved son, Jesus, who is God and is perfectly holy. He had no sin. And when he went to the cross, he was paying the price that we should have paid. He paid it with his death. But he rose from the grave, and he's alive now. And so anyone who admits their sinfulness and turns away from their sin, believing in him, has their sin debt paid for, and Jesus gives them eternal life. He shares the eternal life that's in him with us when we put our faith in him. That's the only way that you can return to the one in whose image you've been made. And it's free. It's free to you. But it's costly too. Because we give him our whole selves. We give him our whole lives. We, the coins of God, go back to the treasure. We come back to the God who made us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the fact that every single person is made in the image of God is the basis for our equality with one another in the church. For Christians in the church, the household of God, there is no reason whatsoever to think more highly of ourselves than we should think of any other person. There's no reason. The basis of our dignity and our worth is the fact that each one of us bears God's image. That's the one reason why cross-cultural friendships and discipleship are so important in our church. You know, we're, we're from over 20 different countries in this church, and we all bear the image of God no matter what country we're, we're from, no, no matter what our ethnicity is. And when we make the effort, and by the way, it takes effort. When we make the effort to love one another across our cultural differences, we're saying to the world that every person is of immense value to God. How are you doing in that area of our corporate life? Before and after the service, are you greeting people who are different than you? Are you engaging in conversation with people that you wouldn't normally gravitate towards? 
Yes, it's, it's wonderful to greet your friends, those closest to you, but I encourage you, reach out to someone that you don't know very well as well. Have you tried meeting up with people who are different than you in either culture or age? You know, those are just the first kinds of steps to take toward building deep relationships of love and commitment, relationships where we can live out our church covenant with one another, to walk together in brotherly love, to admonish one another when necessary, to rejoice with those who rejoice and bear one another's burdens. We do that across cultural, national differences because we're all image bearers and therefore designed and deserving of love from one another. It brings glory to God, friends. And it's not just Christians who bears God, bears, bear God's image, is it? Every person who walks through that door on a Friday afternoon is stamped with the image of God, no matter how marred or twisted it is. And so we treat them with respect and dignity and love. Every person in your workplace is made in the image of God as well and deserves to be treated with love and respect and dignity. Do you treat them as God's possessions regardless of how they treat you? Well, Jesus is also teaching in this passage about the different kinds of authority in our lives, obviously. He mentioned Caesar. By acknowledging Caesar's right to tax, Jesus is also acknowledging that Caesar and his government have God-given authority over the people. He's not necessarily saying that Caesar is using his authority in godly ways, but authority, his authority, is legitimate. God establishes earthly authorities for our own good. The Bible is clear about that. For, so, for example, in the Ten Commandments, God establishes that parents are to be honored. Scripture teaches that when we're children, we're to obey our parents. Scripture teaches that gospel-preaching churches have the authority to declare to the world who's a Christian and who isn't, who represents Jesus. And if someone is living an unrepentant life, though they're always welcome to come and hear the preaching of God's word, we will not admit them to be members of the church. That would be a misuse of the authority that God has given us as a church. And Paul speaks about earthly authorities in many of his writings in the New Testament. For example, in Romans 13, verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And yet Jesus is also teaching here that God has ultimate authority. He will hold all earthly authorities accountable for how they've used the authority that he's given them. Parents will be held accountable. Churches and their leaders will be held accountable. Caesar and presidents and rulers will be held accountable. And so we live in this world obeying earthly authorities because we believe that God has established them no matter how ungodly they are, but we obey them only when obeying them doesn't cause us to sin against God and his authority. What we believe as a church about different authorities is actually even mentioned in our statement of faith. It says in one of the articles of our statement of faith, we believe that civil government is of divine appointment 
for the interests and the good order of human society. And that officials are to be prayed for. Do you remember me doing that in the pastoral prayer? And consciously, conscientiously honored, they are to be obeyed except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. So we're recognizing God-given earthly authorities and how and to what extent we should obey them. But we're also recognizing when we should disobey them. We should obey, for example, the UAE government at all times, recognizing that the rulers here are in power because God has put them in power, even when we see that their rule might be ungodly at times. But if they command us to live in ways that go against how God has commanded us to live, well, then we should obey God and be willing to suffer the consequences joyfully. Earlier this year, the Chinese government began a crackdown on underground churches. I prayed for them in, um, in the pastoral prayer, as you can remember. They began to increase the pressure on these churches, telling them that they needed to stop meeting. They began arresting many of the church leaders and church members. It's estimated that 100,000 Christians have been arrested this year, 2018, compared with last year, just under 4,000. 4,000 to 100,000. This past Sunday, over 100 members of a church in Chengdu, China, and their pastor were arrested, and they haven't been heard from since. Pastor Wang Yi had prepared a letter in advance to be released 48 hours after he was arrested, if he hadn't been released by that point in time, and so some of the members of his church released a letter that was published it's an amazing letter. I encourage you to go find it online. Pastor Wang Yi, he's the senior pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church. He begins his letter like this. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. He goes on to say, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people, the goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is greatly wicked. It's an unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. It's an amazing letter. Pastor Yi knows the scriptures. 
Pastor Yi knows who his ultimate authority is too. Christians make the best citizens in countries because we're commanded by God to pray for authorities and to live in submission to them as long as it's also in submission to God. We should make the best citizens. But Christians also make the most dangerous citizens as well because we answer to a higher authority. And if we must, we will choose to obey God and suffer the consequences just like our Savior Jesus did when he preached the gospel and he was crucified as a result. Do you understand the various authorities in your life and how you should respond to them? If you're a young person, do you obey your parents in everything except those things which the Lord commands otherwise? Are you aware that some governments command Christians not to seek the salvation of all people by sharing the gospel with them? Are you aware of that? They make it a crime to work to see people of all religions repent and trust in Christ and Christ alone. This too we will disobey. That last short sentence in this passage is telling. Just five words. And they marveled at him. And they marveled at him. They thought they had set an inescapable trap for Jesus. Even Jesus' enemies could see that he was brilliant. He was perfectly wise. And all they could do was stand and be amazed at his understanding of everything and everyone. But the questions keep coming. Next to challenge him were the Sadducees. They sought to make him look foolish to embarrass him, but Jesus displayed wisdom about marriage and the resurrection. That's the second point this afternoon. Wisdom about marriage and the resurrection. Look with me at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Now the Sadducees were a sect of Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that all people would be raised to then be judged by God. They also didn't believe in the existence of angels or demons, nor did they accept any other part of the Hebrew scriptures other than the first five books, which is called the Pentateuch. And so that means that there were 34 books of the Old Testament that they rejected. They only believed the first five. They didn't believe in the resurrection, yet they asked a question of Jesus about the resurrection. Of course, they intended to embarrass him. They wanted to make him look foolish. They wanted to make him renounce his belief in the resurrection. And their question was an elaborate, hypothetical story about seven brothers who each successively married one particular woman. And they reference a particular command that was, of course, as you might guess, in the Pentateuch, <laughs> the scriptures that they believed. It was in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. God had commanded that if a man died, his brother should marry that man's widow to provide an heir and to preserve that man's name. And then in their little story, each brother marries the widow of his brother, but then he dies. And eventually they all died, having each been married to the woman at some point. And their question in verse 23, in the resurrection, which we actually don't believe in, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as his wife. 
Again, remember, they don't believe in the, in the resurrection, and so their question is actually designed to force Jesus to admit that the resurrection is problematic. But Jesus is smarter. Jesus is wiser. And Jesus is right when they're wrong, and he shows them. Is this not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? You see, the Sadducees didn't know the scriptures. Now, they knew of the scriptures, of course. <laughs> they knew what was in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. They were familiar with it, but they didn't understand it properly. You can know something about God's word, but not know how to rightly interpret it. That's one reason why we want to be a church which preaches the Bible expositionally each week. We want to work through entire books of the Bible because if we work through entire books of the Bible, we'll be able to better understand individual verses in those books. As you listen to me or any other preacher who preaches here in this pulpit, you should be learning more and more about how to rightly interpret God's Word. This is one of the best places to learn how to understand the Bible rightly. And that's why it's important for you to follow along, to not just think about your to-do list for the week. You need to understand the reasons why those who preach here come to the conclusions that we come to when explaining the Bible and how you should live in light of the truth that we find here. Now, if you have a, a question about the conclusions that I reach in any of my sermons or the reason, reasoning that I walk us through when I'm explaining the scriptures, you should ask. Stop us afterwards. Call me or write me. Talk with one of the other elders in the church here or maybe the person who brought you. Talk with one another about the conclusions that were reached in the sermon, the things that were asserted by the preacher based on the scripture. We want to be a church that's like the church that was in that city called Berea in Asia Minor that's mentioned in the book of Acts in the New Testament. It says this about them. Now, these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Make the right understanding of God's word a daily endeavor for you as a Christian, a daily endeavor. It will guard you from being wrong and about about very, very important things in your life. It will guard you from sin. Now, as Jesus begins to explain his rebuke of the Sadducees, his first correction is about the afterlife. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is saying that Eternal life with God will be unlike life in the world now because there will be no marriage in heaven. I just want you all to know, go on record, that Joanne thinks this is a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> Me too. Well, when I think of it just on a surface level, he says that people in heaven will be like angels. That means unmarried, not sexually active. And with this rebuke, Jesus not only rejects their idea that there's no rejection, but he also rejects their idea that marriage will continue in the afterlife. They obviously thought that. And he affirms that angels exist. Remember, they didn't believe in them either. 
One of the things that this teaching of Jesus shows us is that both marriage and singleness in the church tell the world something about God and the afterlife. Marriage and singleness tell the world something about God and the afterlife. Both singleness and marriage are highly regarded in the church. Paul says that for many people, singleness is to be preferred. And the scripture teaches us that marriage is a symbol of God's work in reconciling the church to himself through Christ. Of course, a husband represents Christ while his wife represents the church. And together in They are in covenant relationship with one another, just like we are in covenant relationship with Jesus. Ephesians 5 teaches us that. You should go read it if you're not familiar with it. But because of what we learn here, we can also affirm that singleness is a role or station in life that points toward what heaven will be like as well. Single people united in covenant love with other Christians, both married and single in the church, point to how we're going to live when we're in heaven. All single, unmarried. There won't be marriage in heaven. There won't be sex in heaven. And if you're single and you're a Christian, it's fine to hope for marriage, even to pray for marriage, but don't miss the role that you have now in the church of being a witness to what heaven will be like for all of us. Hope for marriage, yes, but be content and eager to serve God in your singleness now. Live in sexual purity. Give your time to serving others. Involve yourself in ministry. Commit to growing in understanding of the scriptures. Develop meaningful relationships with married people and others in different life circumstances than you. This is the kind of single life that testifies to the reality of heaven. That's what it says to the world. Now, Jesus doesn't simply correct their wrong view about what life will be like after the resurrection. He goes on to forcefully disprove their wrong view that the resurrection didn't exist. And he did it from one of the first five books of the Bible, you might notice. Look at verses 26 through 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. Jesus turns to the book of Exodus and he directs their attention to that passage that Sarah read for us earlier in the service where Moses encounters God in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. And it was there that God revealed himself by a title that included the names of three patriarchs who had died long ago. They're mentioned in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jesus concludes by God's title for himself that if God says that he's currently the God of these men, then it must mean that they're still alive. Each one of these men were in a covenant relationship with God that was initiated by God and based on promises of God with boundaries and expectations of those men. And just like a marriage covenant, those men were in covenant relationship with God. Jesus knows that the promises of protection for these men were for life and also for their greatest enemy, death. 
And so this God is a God who kept his promises and has the power to bestow life to anyone and anything so that he would have kept them alive as well, even after their death. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, and they are with God. And so Jesus announced the truth of the resurrection to these disbelieving Sadducees based on the scriptures that they were supposed to know and understand. And Jesus ends this rebuke of these men and their failed attempt to make him look foolish with a resounding, you are quite wrong. Of course, Jesus' ultimate rebuke to them concerning the resurrection of the dead wouldn't just be an announcement. No, no, it would be a demonstration. His own resurrection from the dead. Jesus himself is the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the cornerstone proof that everyone will be resurrected from the dead to be judged by God. Is Jesus himself your hope for the resurrection? Is he the one that you're trusting in for life eternal? Christians, be assured. Jesus has been raised from the dead and so will we if we trust in him. Both of these confrontations with the religious leaders of Jesus' day show that Jesus is perfectly wise and he has all authority which can't be taken away or defeated. Do you realize that Jesus was the smartest man to walk the face of the earth? I don't know if you think of him like that. I'm sure you think of him as the kindest man. But do you think of him as the smartest man? Jesus has all knowledge. He has all discernment. He has infinite intelligence and endless wisdom. Colossians 2 verse 3 reminds us that in Jesus we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He had the power and the knowledge to heal the sick. He could suspend gravity as he walked on water. Jesus could cause storms to be calmed and demons to obey. Is there any doubt in your mind that Jesus could be tripped up by the wicked men in this passage? No, their best, the best that they could throw at Jesus was child's play for Jesus to defeat. His and our greatest foe was death and Satan. But Jesus wasn't fearful of that confrontation either. He said, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it back up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. One theologian has said, Jesus isn't just nice. He's brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived. He's not super. He is currently supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also the things that matter most in human life. This perfectly wise, full of authority man is your living Lord, brothers and sisters. Worship him. Trust in him. Marvel at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you sent your beloved Son 
full of all wisdom and knowledge. We praise you that he was the perfect sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. We trust in him. We stand in awe of him. We believe in him, and we want to live for him. In Christ's name, amen.